Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters, and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz. I was re-listening to some of our old episodes and I remembered when I sang the theme tune. Um, Somebody messaged us and was like, am I always sing that theme tune? And I was like, the theme tune? What? <laughs> and then I realised that she meant that. <laughs> uh, Jess and I are both going through a manic episode. <laughs> so if this is, uh, oh. if this is uh completely frenetic and just incomprehensible it's like that in real life too it's not just with you no we are both off the rails um it's all gonna be okay jess has opened up her packets of freddos and has them like lying out on the counter in front of her so she doesn't make rapid noises while she eats chocolate (laughs) because i need it tonight um thank you all so much for coming back and listening i guess uh, you know, we love having you. <laughs> we love not speaking into the void. We um, love that listeners here. Thank you um, so much to the people that uh, reached out about our um, past, uh, our last episode, the Bathurst Wars. Um, uh, as always, you can email us on murderintheLandofOz at gmail.com. Um, we do have a new Patreon. Colleen! Yay! And then Cursed D donated on our ACAST. Um, so just to clarify it, so you can donate on ACAST. Just found that out a second ago from Zane. Once off. You can make a once off donation on ACAST. Yeah, so, so if we you don't want to be like an ongoing monthly Patreon, which we completely understand money is tight, but you're still money like, is tight. Mm, I want to slide them a 20 under the table so they like do what I want. You can do that. Yeah. Um, but then we have Patreon, which is like a monthly subscription, I guess. Um, Everybody so have- knows what Patreon is. It's 2020. There are tiers. You pay money. We do stuff depending on how much you pay. Not like weird Um, stuff. Again, not OnlyFans content, but just like. (laughs) That's right. I forgot we talked about that. Um, So, yeah, Patreon is where you can pay monthly and there's Patreon-only content and stuff like that on there. So just to clarify, again, um, is there anything else to tell you? No, I don't think so. Um, All right. Well, it's an Ellen episode tonight. Are we ready? Are we excited? Jess has already begun on what I believe is a caramello koala. It is a caramello koala. (laughs) There is a visible telltale ooze. I'm going to be keeping a caramello count. Not for yes. shame. Not for shame no. reasons. Just for interest. Um, I've got intrigue. two more caramellos and one Freddo. 
Oh, one Freddo. Do you remember those giant the Freddos? Yeah, those massive, like, I'm so scared to touch anything on my my, my desk. <laughs> I remember, like, the fundraising Freddos. Yeah, but they're really big ones. Am I making them bigger in my mind? Because I was I like, think you're making them bigger in your mind. I remember them being, like, roughly the size of my torso. <laughs> no, you de- definitely made that up. <laughs> A torso-sized Freddos, like, running around. <laughs> That would be great. Also, you've just reminded me. I was just like, oh, that remind that just like thrust a childhood memory into my brain. My parents um always would buy me Easter bilbies for Easter instead of Easter bunnies, and I couldn't eat them because I thought they were like real, real bilbies. I was like, mom, I can't. This is an endangered species. I don't know. Like, it's cute. I can't eat this. And like, bunnies are pests, so we can eat chocolate bunnies. Bunnies are pests. We're doing the environment a favor if we eat the Easter bunny. You can't eat the Easter bilby. God, mum. No, we still we still joke about the Easter bilby. Anyway, should we talk about... Yeah, let's talk about... Yeah. So as um, like the last episodes, we said like this season we're focusing on Indigenous deaths. Um, so what episode have you got for us tonight, Ellen? So this episode, this case came up literally like as a... Uh, literally like put, put itself into my field of vision. Um, I came across this case on Instagram. Ooh. I know. I'm on Instagram. <laughs> You wouldn't know it because I never interact with anybody or post anything. And she doesn't She doesn't like it when people follow her. No, I like it when people follow me. I just don't want them to have any expectations that I'm going to do anything. Apart from right. occasionally post a picture of a cow. Um, and you posted a mountain yesterday and you said, what a terrible view or something. No, I, it was today and I said, living the dream. <laughs> Uh, it was a very magical day in Tasmania. It was like a little bit warm. And anyway, so this, I came across this post on Instagram. I can't remember if it was a sponsored post. I don't think so. I think possibly just somebody that I followed like reposted it. But um, it was the story. It's uh, about it, the case of a woman named Tanya Day. And I will tell you the entire story. Mm-hmm, 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 oh, mm-hmm. you already know about this? Jess is mid-caramello. Um, <laughs> so it's another story about um, an Indigenous death in custody and there are lots of similarities to the John Pat case, which, you know, maybe will not be the most thrilling storytelling for people, but I think it is just like such a, a, a massive indictment and a representation of the problem that, you know, we discussed, you know, a case that happened more than 30 years ago, um, the case of John Pat, and this extremely similar situation happened in 2017, so only three years ago. So Tanya Day was a 55-year-old uh, Yorta Yorta woman who died in police custody in 2017. So um, the Yorta ancestral lands encompasses around 20,000 square kilometres on either side of the Murray River, which cover parts of what is both now Victoria and New South Wales. So it's like on the border. Um, Tanya was from, damn it, I just YouTubed this. Yuchuka. Yuchuka, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I have dyslexia. Um so she's from Yuchuka and it's a town that is basically smack bang on the Murray River on the Victoria side and then on the New South Wales side. Um, it's like right, right across the border. I don't know why I am stressing this so much. People understand the concept of borders. Like you, you're in a border town and then like an edge of your town is like in the other state and like that's kind of interesting I guess as like a fun fact that you tell people. I don't know why I'm hammering the point home so much. It has no bearing on the story. But just so you know, <laughs> Yuchuka is on the Victoria New South Wales border. 
So Tani was born on the uh, 8th of September 1962 at the Munakala Aboriginal Mission in New South Wales. She was one of 10 children, um, which must have been stressful at Christmas time for her parents. And she was a very, she's said to be a really mischievous and cheeky child and who loved going out in the bush with her dad. She was extremely connected to the country in which she was raised. And when she grew up and had kids and grandkids of her own, she brought them back to Munakala so they could feel that connection too. So Tanya and her family moved to Yuchuka when she was still young after her father died. Um, and she had a very normal life and upbringing, growing up as a proud Yorta Yorta woman. Uh, she loved to get dolled up and go out with her friends. And she had her first child, Belinda, at 18, and she would go on to have four more children named Lauren, April, Kimberly, and Luke. She was a fiercely proud mother who loved her children immensely and raised them to be strong, resilient, and proud of who they are. In 1984, Tanya suffered a terrible tragedy when her four-month-old son, Luke, died of sudden infant death syndrome. Mm. Uh, Like, you can't imagine. And it was a literal, Mm. like, stereotype story that you hear about SIDS where, like, you just come home and see the baby in the cot not moving. Um, I can't imagine what that would do to a person and it it absolutely devastated Tanya and she never really fully recovered from it although she was a very happy cheerful person like you know the the event really changed her and she found it really difficult to cope and one of the ways that she did try and cope was to turn to alcohol which I think self-medicating and stuff like that which is very common very common not at all surprising. But as I said, she still had a very full life. She was a vibrant member of her community. She loved NRL and the South Sydney Rabbitohs. Can't relate, but good for her. Um, she loved to dress up. Like, she was a very tizzy lady. She was definitely tizzy. She would always... Love a tizzy woman. She loved to wear high heels. Like, one thing that was mentioned was that she, like, wore, like, high heels to, like, her one-year-old's... Like, her one-year-old niece's birthday party or something like that. Like, oh, she would... And she loved, queen. like, a fur coat and, like, a... Just, like, a stylish moment, you know? Uh, she also loved to cook. And she had a range of a lot of jobs throughout her life involved cooking. Um, she had her own catering company at one point, but she also really loved to cook for her family and for her community. And it was like like a like a rep that she had that she would always like cook up a storm during NADOC week celebrations. Um, so December of 2017 was a really happy time in Tanya's life because she was planning on moving to Melbourne to be with her youngest daughter who was pregnant with her first child. So on the 5th of December 2017, Tanya was on her way to visit her daughter in Melbourne um, so she could kind of, you know, have a visit and also start looking at places that she might move into. So to get to Melbourne from Yuchuka, which is like three hours away, she had to get a bus. She had to get a bus and then um, to the train station and then get on a train to go into Melbourne. So as I said, Tanya did have a bit of a drinking problem and she bought some alcohol with her to get through the journey. And before we go on any further, because I think it is a very important thing to say, um, being an alcoholic isn't a crime. No. It's a health issue. Mm -hmm. Um, It's extremely common, like extremely, extremely common. And I think that, you know, in a lot of the kind of cases that we've been researching, not often, but sometimes, um, not not from our listeners or anything, but when I'm reading news articles and there are comments and things like that, you know, the fact that somebody is drunk when something bad happens to them isn't an indictment on their character or no. means that they deserved anything that happened to them. It means they were drunk. Like, it's nothing else. And nobody casts aspersions on, like, white-collar lawyers who have, like, five whiskeys during the day like they're in fucking Mad Men or something. Yeah. You know? It's but- generally like alcoholism is such a class problem as well because you're exactly right like a corporate guy on eagle street here in brisbane will go and have a couple of like they'll get absolutely plastered after work but you know a woman of color who isn't rich 
who's just living her life like they're like oh yuck like like it's just such a problem with our class system here because we just think you know everything's an issue if you're poor yeah exactly poor people cannot get away with shit you know any non-white middle class person can't get away with shit like you're immediately looked down upon for things like like how many like how many um corporate people or how many just white people being drunk on a train and nobody would bat an eyelid nobody would bat an eyelid like you know it's the same thing of like white people doing cocaine at parties versus like you know people doing heroin like in their houses and stuff like that like why is one i mean they're both not fab but like one is like oh wow you did this at a party that's so cool the other is you know the the class and the the divide there is just so it's so unfair it's so unfair um so that soapbox being boxed so yeah so tanya brought a couple of bottles of wine with her so she began drinking when she was on the bus to the train station and when she got to the train station at bendigo she was already drunk so when she got on the train basically she found her seat and went to sleep and sean irvine who is a train conductor with v-line was going down the train checking tickets and at 2 50 p.m he came across tanya who was again just asleep on a train um not a crime not a crime with her feet lying across the aisle of the train also not a crime mr irvine woke her up and asked to see her ticket and mr irvine said that her response to his inquiry wasn't intelligible and that she wasn't able to produce a ticket and that she appeared to be drunk so v-line has policies about what to do if a customer is quote unruly or quote not in control and those are the two terms that are used by v-line in order to designate like you you can have an unruly a passenger or a passenger who is not in control and they have different policies and procedures based on what category you fit into essentially so Irvine made the decision to contact the train driver and inform them about Tanya and requested that the police be called and um witnesses who were on the train at the time said that Mr. Irvine's conversation with Tanya lasted for less than a minute so he like he spoke to her for less than a minute and had contacted the train driver within three to four minutes so this entire interaction took like minutes so Irvine requested that the train train driver contact the police because quote she's got no idea where she is who she is she hasn't got a ticket can't make any sense out of her and I don't want her on the train so he's saying that you know she's she's completely out of her wits essentially can't can't make any sense of her whatsoever but all of the witnesses said that she was just asleep on the train not a crime not a crime so later on uh sean irvine would go on to say that his haste essentially in contacting the police was that um they were approaching castle main station and there wouldn't be another stop for quite a while after that station um he said the part of his concern uh was the risk that tanya presented in terms of her own safety and the safety of other people on the train um but also in terms of like whether or not she had a particular destination that she was going to or if she knew where she was or where she was going so you can kind of maybe understand like okay well she's on the train she allegedly doesn't have a ticket she did have a ticket but you know if she got on the train from bendigo and went all the way to melbourne and she wasn't meant to go to melbourne and she didn't know where she was then you you could understand why somebody would be concerned for their safety there um he also said that he was concerned that if she was left on the train she might get off at an unmanned station and injure herself or something so the police were called and the train made an unscheduled stop at castle main station i've just accidentally closed my window that's not good 
Oh no. I don't know how I did that. I'm not very um good with computers. Never mind, it's back. So yes, called them and the train made an unscheduled stop at Castlemaine Station. The police attended the scene just after 3pm. The officers in question were Senior Constable Thomas and Senior Constable Towns. Towns and Thomas, dynamic duo. When the call came over the radio, the description that was given was of a scene at Castlemaine Station about, quote, an unruly female passenger on board. She's either intoxicated or drug affected. Uh, so the train she con- was asleep! She was asleep and she also wasn't unruly. The train conductor said to the officers, quote, there was an Aboriginal in that carriage who, uh... There was an Aboriginal in that carriage who was unruly slash intoxicated and didn't have a ticket. So again, the key words there are unruly and Aboriginal. She was asleep on the train. Anyway, hashtag she was asleep on the train. So uh, senior constable. Take a shot every time we say that this episode because I feel like it's going to be a lot. I feel like it's probably going to be a lot. So yes, Townsend Thomas were the police on the scene. Then there was also a senior constable Herford and leading senior constable Fitzgibbon who also got the call and were on their way to the scene driving in the divisional van. They said that the details that they heard over the radio was, quote, there was a female they wanted kicked off the train as she was causing trouble on the train. No witnesses in the train carriage ever said that Tanya was unruly or disruptive in any way whatsoever she was asleep, asleep on, on the, the train, train. <laughs> so senior constables thomas and towns get into the train carriage where tanya is thomas said that he could see a pair of legs from the knees down blocking the aisle and he said he got the he said that he got the feeling that other people on the train quote had a look of disgust and quote it was obvious to me that she made other people on the train feel uncomfortable to which i would counter that the more likely observation would be that they were probably annoyed about having an unscheduled stop on an already three hour long train journey like i don't know i'm not a police officer and i have not been trained in the art of deduction but i think that you couldn't inter like you couldn't interpret that from um, you know a handful of people also the on fact the train. that like you know not that this would mean that you know whatever like but if there was no complaint against her this is one guy making one assumption and yet people are probably pissed off on the train so like fuck i need to get to where i'm going and we're stopped mm-hmm. exactly Ugh. So SC Thomas said that he tried to speak to Tanya and didn't get a response, so he tapped her on the foot and she, quote, sprang up and she seemed disoriented. SC Thomas said that he could immediately tell that Tanya was drunk because her words were slurred um, and her answers to questions didn't make sense. And some of what she was saying were more like moans and groans rather than like verbal responses. Um, the decision was made that Tanya was not in a state where she could be left on the train. Uh, so SC Thomas said that he kind of thought about it and was like, mm, mm, do I leave her on the train? Do I take her off? Um, but he said that he made the decision in part because he was worried that if she, if he left her on the train and then she hurt herself somehow or something else happened, then he would end up being liable. So they they hadn't established Tanya's identity or if she knew where she was going or anything like that. So they felt that she couldn't, they couldn't leave her there. Like it wouldn't be a responsible policing or whatever to leave her on the train. S.E. Thomas said that their goal was not necessarily not necessarily to like take her down to the station and book her, but just to take her off the train and hope that there was somebody that could come and pick her up. Um, so as I mentioned, Echuca is about, well, it's it's like three hours in total from Echuca to Melbourne. And so they're at Castlemaine, which is about an hour and a half away. Um, so the decision, so nobody was going to be able to come pick her up, basically. No. So the decision was made to arrest Tanya for the crime of public drunkenness, an arrest which SC Thomas called his most low-key arrest ever. 
So once they took Tanya off the train and they were on the platform, they noticed that, well, they noted that Tanya was unsteady on her feet, um, although she was able to walk off the train unassisted. I'm literally looking at Castlemaine on the map. Like, it's no, like... It's not near a Tuka. It's not... N- it's not near no. anything. I got really confused while I was riding Castlemaine because I didn't know Castlemaine was a real place. I thought it was just the name of um, a beer. So I was like, hmm. But oh no, it's God. a squad. Um, it is. Yes, yeah, so she was unsteady on her feet, but she was able to walk off the train unassisted. S.C. Thomas placed Tanya's level of intoxication somewhere in the vicinity of a 7.5 out of 10, but didn't feel that she required medical attention. And this was based on his assessment of Tanya against the Victoria Police's like medical checklist, which contains this thing called a coma scale, something that I never heard of before this, um, which is basically like evaluating how conscious a person is. S.C. Thomas said that while Tanya Tanya's responses were, quote, meaningless and unintelligible, which would have placed her at Chromis Scale 3, which is sent to hospital and seek urgent medical advice. Her responses were getting quicker and more clear as time went on. And he said that for about three minutes of their conversation, she was unintelligible, but for the further 15 minutes of conversation, she was merely confused. So this is going to, uh, much like hashtag sleeping on the train, this is going to be a repeated pattern where Tanya was somehow so drunk that she had to be removed from whatever setting that she was in, but also not not drunk enough to require any kind of medical care. So she always just manages to skirt that line of not, you know, drunk enough to be arrested but not drunk enough to receive help in any way. Yeah, help. So the police Ugh. were attempting to access Tanya's phone to call somebody to see if they could come and pick her up. And Tanya was a little bit confused by their instructions and she was having trouble getting into her phone, um, partly because the screen was smashed and the sun was reflecting on it, making it hard to, like, access. And just to make this about me for a second, I literally have nightmares all the time where somebody is like, oh my god, you have to call triple zero, it's an emergency, and I can't unlock my phone for whatever reason. I had a dream the other night that this happened. I can't remember what the crisis was, but I had to keep on coming up with excuses as to why I couldn't, like, unlock my phone. And it was just me, like, just with, like, increasingly wild lies about, oh, I can't read, actually, like, trying to, like obfuscate that I couldn't access my phone. I don't know why this is such a frequent anxiety dream for me. I don't know what it means. But like when I read that, I was like, oh, can relate. Um, So yes, they tried to access uh, Tanya's phone. They couldn't do it. By this point in time, the divisional van had arrived and Tanya was placed into the van. Um, So there was a lot of discussion at the inquest about Tanya's mental state, um, obviously because the police had like a legal and also a moral obligation to provide medical care for Tanya if it seemed like she needed it. Um, So as I mentioned, there was a lot of discussion about like, you know. I just don't understand why that's not the first port of call. Like if someone's incoherent, like you don't know, like she could have had a stroke or something. Like Yeah. They haven't breathalyzed her. They don't have 100% knowledge that she's... Well, they said that they could smell alcohol in her breath and that she was, like, you know, acting... I know, but, like, that's still an assumption. And for me, like... I don't know I just don't see the point in arresting somebody instead of actually taking them and because like if she had been drinking take her to the hospital so then she can get a couple like she can get some fluids and can like rest yeah and that's like a really crucial point with this case and also with the inquest is that you know evaluating that level to whether or not like you know at one you know I think the the issue is that, like, if you're a police officer and you come across somebody in this state, you have a police response to that, which is arrest yeah. them for public And documents. that's what the whole argument comes back to about defunding the police and making sure that there's different people for different circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, 
it's kind of that like, well, you know, they're not, they weren't necessarily wrong in terms of like the standards that we have set. Like they were operating. No, they just they responded were, as police. Exactly. They were operating within their guidelines and they're doing the right thing as per like what the police do, but they were not doing the right thing as per what the situation required. So what it's Tanya like needed. what Tanya needed. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, as Tanya was being placed in the divisional van, they finally got onto her daughter, Kimberly, who was basically like, look, I'm hours away. I can't come and pick her up from Castle Main Station. Um, so that kind of route, that alternative option was closed off. And the police were also questioned a lot at the inquest um, about the consideration of alternative options for Tanya. So as I said, they didn't necessarily, they weren't like, alrighty, book them boys. Like they weren't necessarily like stoked. Jess is on Caramello 2, I believe. Caramello 3. Okay. So they weren't necessarily like, oh, like you know, hell yeah, let's let's lock this bitch away for life kind of thing. Um, they they tried to explore alternative options, but as soon as that one alternative option of somebody coming and picking her up like wasn't possible, like, oh well, it was like okay. So the they were asked at the inquest about enough. whether or not they thought about taking her to the Bendigo District Aboriginal Corporation, but the police basically said that they didn't think of it and that the normal practice with public drunkenness was to take the person to the cop shop to essentially sleep it off and they would be held there for only around four hours so that's what the police did again that's that police response versus any other kind of response thing happening um the police also said that they really felt like they had done more than what they would normally do for a publicly publicly intoxicated person um essie thomas said that they had talked to tanya for around 20 minutes or so on the platform they tried to find alternatives for her to get home but were unable firstly to get into her phone for that period of time and then unable to get somebody to collect her they said that in other situations they would maybe talk to somebody for five minutes before that kind of decision was made Uh, and the police said that they were conscious that she was in a vulnerable vulnerable position as an older woman who was alone but they very much denied the fact that she was aboriginal had any impact on their decision making more significant they said was the fact that she didn't live close by so she couldn't be driven home and she didn't have anybody to collect her she was too drunk and too vulnerable to be left at the station for somebody to collect too drunk to leave on the train to continue her journey drunk enough to be arrested for it but not drunk enough to require medical attention so tanya day was taken to the police station in what the coroner called a quote sensitive act and an acknowledgement of tanya's age and status she wasn't handcuffed so oh well i know we didn't cover exactly oh, it's like me. well she did die but at least we didn't handcuff her um so uh so right after tanya was taken away in the van sc thomas and sc towns then attended a call about a quote heavily intoxicated female at the cumberland hotel this woman was hassling patrons at the hotel to give her money and she had none and so the police come up they're like hey don't do that and she was driven by the police to her friend's house wasn't arrested and wasn't given a fine for public intoxication can i guess that that woman was white she wasn't white but she was an oh. Aboriginal. Um, well, I say she wasn't white. The The police didn't know what she was. She was a bit ethnically ambiguous, you might say. So they were like, nope, it's not the fact that she was an Aboriginal that had an impact. She was actually brown herself. So checkmate. I'm not racist. You're the racist one. Um, that's not what they said, mm. obviously. Uh, so S.C. Thomas said that this woman wasn't as drunk as Tanya Day and that the circumstances were, quote, completely different. And the coroner was like, how? And they were like, uh... <laughs> Well, you see, Reasons. she lived close by and therefore we could drive her home <laughs> and that's it. So S.C. Thomas said that he applied a, quote, community policing approach to this situation, which he believed didn't require an arrest. 
But as the coroner noted, Tanya didn't receive such community policing. Okay, she lived far away, and okay, the police tried to continue to, you know, find other options. But also, they only contacted her family as she was being placed in the police van. So they called Kimberly, they spoke to Kimberly, and Kimberly said that they couldn't come pick her up. She was already in the van. Nobody else was contacted. Um, You know, the coroner stopped short of saying that this situation was because of racism, but she did point out the clear differences between the two cases. At this point, I'm going to pause the story and tell another story. Okay. So in 1982, Harrison Day, who is Tanya Day's uncle, died in Uchuka District Hospital after suffering an epileptic fit while in police custody. Harrison was known to the Uchuka police, had been arrested before many times, Times, and it was known that he was an epileptic. He too was arrested for public drunkenness, a crime that Commissioner Walton, during the original Royal Commission into Indigenous Deaths in Custody, which again co- occurred more than 30 years before Tanya's day's deaths, declared an absurd crime that, quote, does nothing to deter, deter or cure drunkenness, but which at considerable public expense and waste of police and court resources simply harasses those addicted to alcohol. So Harrison had been arrested for public drunkenness, but was in fact 100% sober at the time of his arrest. He was taken because he had an unpaid $10 fine for a previous arrest. Oh, fuck off. Harrison was a well-liked, well-respected member of the community in Yachuka. He was described as being a bit vagrant-esque in his lifestyle, but he was allegedly friendly and respectful of police calling them boss. The coroner called Harrison probably the most locked-up person in Yachuka, with some of the disorderly things he did prior to being arrested for being drunk and disorderly, including walking unsteadily along the street or sleeping in a park. If somebody arrested me every time I walked down Brunswick Street unsteadily, I would be in prison until the day I died. So as the coroner in that oh case noted, my God. I know. So as the coroner in that case noted, police didn't lock up every person who was drunk in public in Yuchuka. They even drove a lot of them home, but they never provided this service for Harrison Day. Harrison was 42 years old and as noted by the commissioner, already approaching life expectancy for an Aboriginal person in Victoria at the time. He was a pensioner, having been granted a pension after sustaining a serious injury in his 20s that left him epileptic. He was orphaned at age five, didn't finish primary school, and he was unable to work and hold a license because of a serious illness. He had been a renowned stockman and an excellent horseman who was loved and supported by his family and was, by all accounts, an honourable, jovial, nice person. After he was arrested, he was taken into a cell. No inquiries were made about his health or whether he has whether he had had his medication. Again, police knew he was epileptic. He was never given a meal while in police custody. <laughs> he wasn't physically checked in his cell. Police called out at 2pm to ask if he was okay and Harrison said, yeah boss, in return. After being arrested at 11am, no one attended him in the cell until 5.15pm after the officer on duty heard, quote, gurgling sounds from Harrison's cells and sent two other officers to investigate. Harrison was mid-fit. He was placed in the coma position and an ambulance was called. When he got to the hospital, he was given Valium to stabilize him, which actually ended up suppressing his breathing. He was unable to be resuscitated. Valium as a sort of treatment to an epileptic fit? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. So he died. The emergency doctor on duty at the time believed that Harrison had most likely been in a state of fit for a long time. It was possible even for hours because some epileptics can have fits that like start and stop over long periods of time. Until the Royal Commission occurred seven years later, the only actual investigation into the time into his death was conducted by the literal actual police officer who had been on duty at the time of Harrison's death. 
So the point of bringing this up is not entirely to make you feel worse about life in the world, but to make the point that 30 years before Tanya's death, police officers made the decision to treat a person differently to how they would treat other people and that person died. Police in Utuka in the 1980s had the option to drive drunk people home, and they frequently did, but they never drove Harrison Day home, the quote, most locked up person in Utuka. They knew Harrison was a broke pensioner and never paid his fines, but they kept arresting and finding him anyway. They then locked him in a cell where they didn't even look at him for six hours until a police officer literally heard his like death rattle and came and checked on him. There was no, I'm crying, there was no community policing for Harrison Day. Commissioner Wilson made the recommendation in 1989 for the crime of public drunkenness to be removed from the criminal code, echoing recommendations Commissioner Muirhead had made in the Royal Commission interim report earlier. That recommendation had been taken on board in 1989 and Harrison's niece Tanya would be alive today. So once I'm really mad. <laughs> it's just the most cyclic injustice and it just shows the systemic nature of this Fucking problem. Systemic racism in our country. What the f- Fuck. And, you know, the whole, like, community policing, like, community policing is all very well and good, but it's not good at all if you don't apply it to all members of the community. No, just because someone's a particular colour. If you just start, And because you're yeah. making assumptions. Exactly. So that makes me very not. And if you know, like, as you, as you said, like, they knew he was broke. They knew he had epilepsy. Like, I just... What's the point? What's the what are you achieving? Like nothing. They're not helping. You're not helping. They're just punishing You're not somebody fixing anything. and making people making themselves and making the white people in the community more comfortable. Exactly. It reminds me very much of the thing that was said about um in the John Pack case about the biggest crime people being visibility. Vi- visible, visibly Aboriginal in public, basically. So I hate that for us. Which all. makes me so ashamed. So ashamed. So once Tanya arrived at Castlemaine Police Station, the officers there had to call the Aboriginal Community Justice Panel in Bendigo to inform them that they had an Aboriginal person in custody, which sounds weird, but that was something that was established um, after the Royal Commission. And the purpose was basically to provide kind of, I guess, that community policing aspect. So there is at least somebody who was aware that there was somebody who was in custody and they could hypothetically provide assistance and legal support. But I'm not going to get into this aspect of it too much because I don't understand enough about the kind of political and police justice system in Victoria to comment. But the the entire kind of organisation, the Aboriginal Community Justice Panel, like to me it didn't really seem like they did much. It was kind of like, a, oh, okay, you know, at least in this case, like they, they didn't go out to pick people up. They didn't... Um, go to the police station like they didn't they didn't really do anything in this case so basically they call them up and they're like hello we have an indigenous person in custody and they are like okay thank you i'm hanging up now like yeah (laughs) thanks for letting me know like that was kind of the the limit of what they as an organization would do in this situation uh so the victoria police manual sets out the minimum standards that must be applied when a person is taken into custody part of those standards are the coma schedule that i mentioned before Um, And part of that is that the police is meant to ask the detainee a question and uh, they make the judgment about the person's health status based on their verbal response. It also says if the person is intoxicated, their, quote, best verbal response should be assessed half hourly. And by verbal response, that means like 
saying something. Like, right. that sounds stupid, but, like, you can't go, uh, and have that be a verbal response. It is like a, communi- no. I can communicate to you how I am feeling and what my health status is in this moment. If I can't communicate to you my health status, then I am unwell and I need to be taken to the hospital. Like, that is right. the standard that is meant to be applied. Uh, the Victoria Police Manual also reminds police that an intoxicated person's health might deteriorate more quickly than somebody who's not intoxicated. It also states that, that detainees who are impacted by drugs or alcohol should be physically checked and roused at least every 30 minutes, and that CCTV can be used to assist physical checks, and that the detainee should be actively engaged during each physical check. It goes on to clarify that a physical check means that an officer is meant to go to the t- cell, observe... Be actually in the cell. No, you don't have to be in the cell. This was about 40 straight pages of the inquest, but you don't have to go into the cell. You just need to be able to physically observe and see the detainee. Right. Um, the police manual also says that CCTV can be used to support checks, but not instead of physical checks. That no. actively engaging with the det- detainee means, quote, speaking with them, asking questions about their health or welfare needs, and obtaining responses. Unfortunately, all of those rules are going to be very relevant very shortly. Right. So Tanya was placed into the holding cell at Castlemaine Police Station at 3.56pm. There were two people on duty, um, LSC Anthony Rowe and Sergeant, Sergeant Edwina Neal. LSE Rowe said that from where, when she was standing at the counter um, about half an hour prior to when she was placed in the cells and was lying down on the bedding, that uh, Tanya's, Tanya didn't seem to become more drunk. Like, she seemed to maintain the same kind of level. She didn't get better, she didn't get worse. You know, from when she was charged to when she was placed in the cells, she was about the same. Sergeant Neal said that it appeared to her that Tanya just wanted to go to sleep. Neither Roe or Neal said that Tanya seemed unbalanced or unsteady on her feet. Um, then the shift changed and LSE Roe was replaced by LSE Walters. He and Neal agreed that Tanya would be checked every 30 minutes. This decision was made, Neil said, because Tanya was an older Aboriginal woman who was more vulnerable in custody, um, so she needed to be checked more frequently. Mm. But that system didn't work out. Neil and Walter said that it was distressing Tanya to be woken up every, oh, sorry, every 20 minutes. They agreed she would be checked every 20 minutes. Every 30 minutes is what they're supposed to do. Um, they said that they were going to check her every 20 minutes because she was more vulnerable, um, but then they said that it was distressing to Tanya to be woken up every 20 minutes, and they thought that it was be it was best to leave her to sleep it off. So they decided to conduct a physical check uh, and followed by a CCTV check 20 minutes later. So that, mean, that meant that Tanya would be checked physically every 40 minutes rather than every 30 minutes as laid out in the guidelines. Walters also said that the station that evening was short-staffed or that afternoon was short-staffed, so it would um, have been easier for them to manage a physical check every 40 minutes rather than every 20. The CCTV footage of Tanya in the cell doesn't support the story that she was distressed after being woken up. In fact, she didn't really do anything at all. She was just kind of was lying down still. So the coroner didn't really believe that the justification, that she didn't believe the explanation for the decreased number of checks. She thought it was more likely that them being understaffed was the crucial factor in making that decision rather than any kind of concern for Tanya being woken no. up. So the first physical check was made at 4.50pm. LSE Walters walked into the cell, looks walks to the cell, looks through the cell through a crack in like the Venetian blinds. He said he said that he asked Tanya, Are you okay through the closed cell door? 
Um, another officer who accompanied Walters didn't hear what Tanya said in response, but said that she did say something. The check in total took seven seconds. As a reminder, the guidelines say that a detainee should be engaged with and they should be offered to, able to offer up a meaningful response. So something that could be said in seven seconds doesn't not, really, not meaningful. Not meaningful. Dr. Singalia, who gave evidence at the inquest, said that at the state of drunkenness, so when after Tanya's death, obviously they um took took her toxicology screen and she was at 0.3% blood alcohol level. Um the legal limit is 0.05, so she was mm-hmm. 0.3. She was pretty intoxicated. And she said that at Tanya's state of intoxication, it would be, quote, inconceivable that she would have been able to communicate rationally. She said that she might be able to reply yes or no, possibly, but that doesn't really constitute a meaningful response. No. So it is evident from the CCTV footage, which you can view, and I have linked in the show notes, but like, big warning, don't. Um, But it's clear when you look at it that Tanya was not capable of supporting herself. She was super unsteady on her feet, and she had stumbled and fallen in her cell several times. The worst fall occurred at 4.51pm, just a minute after LSE Walter's extremely cursory check. Tanya stands up from where she is lying on the bunk, walks to the other side of the cell, is unable to stay on her feet, and falls and hits her head strongly against the bunk side of the wall. The next physical check occurred at 5.35pm. The CCTV hadn't shown Tanya moving in any significant way since 4.51. The 5.35pm check lasted four seconds. Tanya didn't move at all through it, and despite Elsie Walters' evidence, the coroner was not satisfied that Tanya gave any verbal response, let alone a meaningful one. The next CCTV check occurred at 5.56pm, and Elsie Walters uh, noticed in the like journal thing, like record of stuff that is going on at the police station today book, um, that he said that Tanya was, quote, moving around freely, although the CCTV shows her lying completely unmoving on the bunk. At five fifty, so he's just fibbing. Pardon? He's just fibbing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so shocked. A police is lying about something. A police, a police officer is lying about something. Anyway, at five fifty-five p.m., she moves her less her left leg and her left arm, and at five fifty-six p.m., her left arm moves from her face and then back to her chest. Only her left leg and left arm and leg could be seen moving, and that is because at this stage, Tanya had sustained hemiparesis, meaning the entire right side of her body was paralysed. Paralysed. In the CCTV footage, you can see that none of her right limbs move at all. The next physical check occurred at 6.43pm, which those of us who can count will realise is a lot more than 40 minutes after 5.35pm. CCTV shows Tanya lying, unmoving, on the ground, with a blanket over her head. The physical check from LSE Walters lasted seven seconds. Sergeant Neal, when she was questioned, said that she didn't think it was odd that Tanya was lying on the ground, nor that she had a blanket over her head. She said that many drunk people lie on the ground and cover their heads because the lighting is bright in the cells. LSE Walters made up a big old lie that he spoke to Tanya over the intercom during one of the checks and that she indicated that she preferred to lie on the ground rather than on the bunk, which was not backed up by any of the CCTV footage. I don't know why you'd bother lying when the entire thing is recorded. Like, what are you hoping will happen? Like, it will magically... Because they don't think that if there is anything wrong that anyone's going to check anything. Nobody's going to check, I guess. So the CCTV footage actually shows her falling from the bunk to the ground writhing on the floor in what looks to me like a like a attempt like she was trying to get up before she lies still with a blanket just haphazardly thrown over her face she didn't curl up in a little ball and pull the blanket over her and go to sleep like a little cat on a bench like she fell off onto the floor like that is what happened 
Um, the next physical check occurred 81 minutes later. Tanya had it. Oh, 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 oh. Tanya hadn't moved at all. That could be seen from the CCTV footage. Um, the last check, it wasn't a check. It was them coming at the end of the four-hour sentence to be like, okay, Tanya, like, how are you going? Are you ready to go home now? But Tanya was semi-unconscious, unmoving on the floor of her cell. So jumping back to the inquest for a second, unsurprisingly, the coroner found that the checks, both the physical and the monitor checks, were not adequate and were not in line with VPM guidelines. Although she did note, and the police did say, that the VPM guidelines are like, this is the best practice and not necessarily like, it's not the law. It's the Pirates of the Caribbean guidelines rather than actual rules situation. But also, like, you have one job, and that's to check somebody every 30 minutes. It's not that it's hard. Not that hard. Because, like, I'm sorry, but we're at Castlemaine in the middle of nowhere in Victoria. How busy could the station how be? busy? I'm sorry, but how busy? And if it is that busy, then obviously you need more police officers on rotation. But I'm sorry, how fucking busy could how it be? How busy could it possibly be? Um... So the coroner also said that both Neil and Walters seem to have preconceived biases about how a drunk person should act while incarcerated. They brushed off everything that happened to Tanya as just being, quote, what drunks do in the cells, including lying completely motionless on the floor for over an hour or not moving the entire right side of their bodies. You know, just drunk person stuff. Mm. So once they realised the situation, LSC Walters called triple zero. What he said to the first responders, the evidence from the CCTV footage and the evidence he gave at the inquest are all contradictory. So he said to the first responders that he had seen her slip an hour ago. There's no record of Walter's writing a slip in the journal, which would have been an extremely significant thing to record. At the inquest, he clarified by saying that he had, quote, seen Tanya fall. He meant that, quote, he did, he did a, I'm not usually like a picky grammar person, but he did the thing that I hate the most in the world, which is that he said, I seen, instead of Isawa. Anyway, he said, I seen her on the bench and now I've seen her on the floor. And as a result of that, I think she slipped off the bench. So this is despite his evidence that he had said earlier that Tanya told him that he, she wanted to sleep on the floor. Wanted to sit on the floor. Yeah. Yep. So Lisa Harrop, who was the first responder, said that she had had the impression from what Walters had told her that he had watched the entire thing go down on CCTV. Um, Lisa noted that Tanya was, when she was like there, like in the moment, she noted that Tanya was intoxicated and she decided that she urgent, urgently needed to be taken to hospital. Um, although she also managed to not notice that Tanya's entire right side was paralyzed. And at the inquest, she said that she was like, mortified and she had gone to like additional training and stuff so she could like you know not do that in the future I suppose and she also said that when she was shown the CCTV footage she could see it like she was like oh my god how did I miss it it's so obvious kind of thing yeah so when the other two paramedics showed up on the scene they were also led to believe that LSE Walters had actually seen Tanya fall um although later LSE Walters and Sergeant Neal would both deny this Sarah Holland, who is a paramedic, explicitly asked if there were any other falls, which LSC Walters denied, um, although he hadn't obviously seen the entirety of the CCT footage of the time that Tony was in the cell, so he would have had no way of knowing if there were any other falls. And um, Sarah was suspicious of the fact that something else must have happened because she didn't believe that the relatively minor fall from the bunk onto the floor, which was described, could have caused the severe hematoma, which was evident on Tanya's forehead. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah also said at the inquest that given Tanya's level of intoxication, it was inappropriate for her in the first place to be in a jail cell, which is like, yeah. 
yeah, Sarah, like you were saying what we every yeah, rational yeah. person has been thinking. Um, mm-hmm. So Tanya Day was transported to the hospital at Bendigo in a serious condition. She had a major cerebral breed on the temporal, frontal, and parietal lobes. She had a she had to undergo surgery. She had a craniotomy and a quote surgical oh. evacuation of the hematoma, which I think means that they like suck they, it they up. They literally take part of your skull and like out. and like suck up all the blood and stuff. Yeah. Um. So Tanya survived the surgery, but the prognosis was very bleak from the beginning. There was one of the the doctors who like reviewed all the thing in the inquest said basically even if if she fell at 4:51 and somebody came in at 4:52 and called the ambulance the chances of her he said that even if she did survive which he said there was a 30% chance that she would never like ever fully recover you know no the thing is with head injuries like it's just it, it's one and done you know like the chances yeah, of yeah. recovering from something like that is so even a minor head injury and this was a massive injury and she was left alone it was a massive for injury hours. she was yeah with her brain bleeding like what like that like that's that's the like you know I think that's the big thing about the debate about deaths in custody is like you know things happen accidents happen people fall and stuff like that but it's just the fact that there was no supervision Mm -hmm. there was no like she shouldn't have been in a jail cell in the first place Mm -hmm. and if she was in hospital getting medical treatment like she should have been this wouldn't this have literally happened. wouldn't have happened. Like, there's just the fact that there's just no care or consideration because people just think, oh, you know, they've just completely made a bias in their head. Yeah. Like that, you know, it's it's unjust. Like we've all been drunk. Yeah, we all fall over. But there, there's like an entire difference between a white person being drunk and an indigenous person in this country being drunk, mm-hmm. and the attitudes towards that. I know it's heinous. She had, she had to have bits of her skull removed. Like, like think about that. She was lying on the floor of a jail cell, like desperately trying to get up, like to the best of her ability, with half her right size paralyzed and her brain hemorrhaging. And some guy looks at the video blinds for four seconds is like mm, yeah just a just a drunk person sweeping it off on the ground like that's the most hideous thing about it's not good it's enough so not it's good hideously enough. not good enough like it's it's criminal it's criminal so as i said she survived the surgery um she was she was unconscious she was in a coma and even if she did wake up as we said now her injuries were such that she would just have severe neurological problems for the rest of her life um so her family looked after her in the intensive care unit um until they had to make the extremely difficult decision to remove her from life support she died on the 22nd of december 2017 at 12:10 a.m so tanya's death was obviously a horrible tragedy and her family were understandably devastated and angry and you know just every emotion that you could probably possibly like express at this moment in time so tanya's death was always going to be the subject of a cranial inquest regardless of any of the circumstances because she died in police custody so those cases are always referred to by now um but you know because of the you know if because of the circumstances there was massive uproar it was like you know another person has another indigenous person has died in police custody so there was a lot of community outpouring there was a lot of there were news articles there was a lot of rage you know about this situation and Tony day's family prepared a submission to the coroner in advance of the inquest that had a lot of really interesting details including all of the information about her personality which i said at the start of the episode um it is all Always remarkable to me and I will never find it not remarkable that you know 
we we've said it before and we'll probably say it again but victims are so overlooked in cases mm. like until i found the submission that her family gave i was like i don't know anything about this woman like i know she likes the rabbitos like where like you know where's the information about she's her? a person like she's an individual she's not a, she's not a statistic she, exactly. she was a mother she was exactly. a daughter she's not she an a... aboriginal who died in custody she's a person no. so anyway all of that information i mean made me cry my fucking eyes out but you know so in part of their submissions they prepared for the coroner Winston, they asked the coroner to consider the impacts um, that systemic racism and unconscious bias had in her mother's case. So the definition of systemic racism was given as, quote, a process that produces statistically discriminatory outcomes for particular racial or cultural groups. It may involve unconscious bias or laws, policies and practices that operate to produce such outcomes. That outcome may occur without conscious racist intent and despite individuals believing that they are simply, quote within a quote, doing their job. So therefore, each witness at the inquest was questioned about whether or not Tanya's aboriginality had an impact on how they treated her. And they were given a hypothetical scenario of a middle-aged white woman and asked basically if what they would do would differ in any way and one um one actual hypothetical was like if there was a i can't remember it because i didn't write it down but it was like if there was a elderly white woman who was on the bus and was confused about where she was would you have like arrested her like would you have treated her like this and the cop was like oh well i can't say that i'm racist so i have to say yes like you know so that's the thing like someone disorientated on public transport could be for you know i know that they could smell the alcohol and stuff like that but irrelevant like alcoholism is a disease and until we start treating it as such and it's until we stop and, and until we destigmatize alcoholism especially in poor people you know like she was asleep on a train like that that is all that you need to take away from all of this to just sort of be like okay wouldn't treat a white person like this so why are we in t- why are we treating the indigenous people of this country like this like i just don't why are they a danger why are they inherently more dangerous than some crackhead who's actually like threatening people and stuff like that but it, because he's white yeah exactly why do we like take that guy who had like a gun in the middle of brisbane like why do we like take they him completely with, like, talked him down stuff? they they talked him down and you know no excessive force was used but if that was a person of color they would be dead before got, the, they put their hand yeah. on the gun in their pocket you know, if that was an Indigenous person and also if that was a person of colour in this country, the circumstances would be inherently, Just like, so entirely different. Mm-hmm. And for anyone to, to say that it wouldn't be, they're lying. They're stupid or they're lying. So, of course, there were questions about whether or not they were racist, essentially. And, of course, nobody said that they were. You know, nobody's going to. Nobody's going to be like, oh, no. you bet, man. But the thing is, is, like, it's systemic and yeah. it's literally ingrained in all of us. Exactly. We, like, we all suffer from it as white people. Oh, for sure. I... I will completely own up to that I've made horrible biases about people just because they've, you know, but it's it's learned behavior that I've had to unlearn mm-hmm. because that is how we are taught. Exactly. And you've got to, like, make the effort to not play into those biases. Otherwise, you're just as bad, you know? Yeah. It's all very well to sit there and be like, mm, I'd never. But, you know, you do. So deal with that. Yeah. Anyway, so... Like, don't... Yeah, anyway. Sorry. I'm getting really angry. That's okay. Soapbox time is once we finish the story. And then everybody who doesn't care about our opinions and just wants to hear the story goes, and goodbye. And thank you. See you later. So the coroner also made the point about... uh 
the issue of systemic race, systemic racism and police discretion, which I mentioned earlier in relation to Harrison Day. So police discretion exists. Police have discretionary powers. They can decide how to act in a situation. Um, and it is a fact that this discretion is differentially applied, whether or not that is because a person is actively being racist or because they have these like, unconscious biases that we're talking about. So, you know, the police did what was within their knowledge, I guess, to stop Tanya from needing to go to a jail cell. But, you know, as the coroner also found, they didn't have sufficient training or, you know, education or understanding of other diversionary tactics, like, for example, calling the Bendigo Aboriginal Corporation, for example. Like, they just didn't know that that was something that they could do. And they, they as we've said, kind of, they didn't know anything other than how to be a police officer about it, you know, yeah. and that's not the way to deal with these kinds of situations. It's not the way to deal with every situation. Yeah, I mean... Like, it's not saying not saying that, you know, that, that sort of function wouldn't be necessary in some sort of situations but in dealing with a harmless woman asleep on the train who was intoxicated who needed medical attention like that was not the response to have exactly and I mean when we're talking about you know oh did she need well is she drunk enough she had a 0.3 percent blood alcohol level that's a lot of alcohol that's a lot of alcohol like you know anyway and at the at the very least needed to be treated for fluids for, to make sure that she was hydrated yeah, exactly. and coherent. Exactly. If you're worried about someone's co- like if you're worried about someone being coherent, you need to hydrate them with water and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. You need to do something. You need to do something and not just lock them mm-hmm. up and make them sleep it off. Yeah. Fuck that. Um, so, yes, there's also the issue of unconscious bias that I've already mentioned, but it bears repeating. Um, the coroner also noted about how the police at the jail immediately just thought that Tanya was acting like just another drunk rather than realising that she was actually going a serious medical emergency. They used their unconscious bias and their preconceived notion of how a drunk person acts and used that to explain away all of Tanya's signs and symptoms. So the coroner found that the case could be referred to the Department of Public Prosecutions because in an indictable offence may have occurred. She also made a number of recommendations, including the abolishment of the crime of public intoxication. Queensland and Victoria are the only two states in Australia that still have this law, which makes sense for Queensland because it's a fucking hellish backwater, but Victoria, you're meant to be our, like, you know... You're meant to be our cultural, like... You're meant to be advanced. Forefront. You know, the Greens are in Melbourne. Like, how come... Come on, man. The Greens are in Melbourne. So, yes, I mean, to every logical person who has had A, a beer in their hand and a brain cell in their head, you know that being drunk in public is just not a crime. Like, it's not like, you know, I'm not saying let's all march in the street like it's St. Patrick's Day every day of the week, but it isn't a crime. No, it's not. Because then half the people that are down the road in Brunswick Street Mall would be arrested all the (laughs) trashy white guys that pour out of the rg or anything like that like if public drunkenness is a crime i should have been arrested every friday and saturday night from approximately 2011 to like 2016 like you know the amount of times that ellen and i like stumbled out of 
clubs and bars and stuff like that. The amount of times, don't listen, mum, but the amount of times that I have been in a predicament because I was so intoxicated, you know, I'm worried about, oh my God, how am I going to get home? Like I can barely walk, I can barely speak, I can barely see. But I have never once worried about, oh no, what if I'm arrested and I die in a jail cell? And that's fucking white privilege right there. And I feel like that's like the fifth time that I've said this since we started doing these episodes. But that is what it is. We have never had to worry about that. And we never will. Never once have I had to consider being prosecuted because I was drunk. Whereas people of colour have to worry about that every single fucking time. Because some dickhead cop could just decide. Mm -hmm. So the Victorian state (sighs) government is in like the final stages of reviewing um, the criminal code for that particular issue. So it's probably going to be repealed. So that's fine. Recently, as in about, um, I think, almost a month ago to when we're recording, um, the DPP released that they would not be pursuing criminal charges against any of the police officers that were involved in the arrest and detainment of Tanya Day. And they didn't give any explanation for the reason behind that decision making. I think that this is a tough case. Um, I think it's even harder than the case of John Pat where like you can very, like there was obvious police misconduct there it's not yeah. necessarily that any of the police apart from the people who were supposed to check on her which they didn't do but even then you know they were negligent but they, there are no they were negligent there are no rules yeah. like if you have no. rules saying you check somebody every 30 minutes and then nothing happens to you when you don't check on somebody every 30 minutes what's your incentive for following those guidelines yeah exactly like the, the failure isn't of necessary well, i mean the failure is of what the police did but the failure is also like within the system the failure is at like the policy level and the the way that the police as an institution are implemented you know because it's very different when you're um put into like a a hospital ward or something like that where you're continually monitored like I'm not gonna go into my experiences on that but like literally you're in a room where either someone is 10 steps away behind a closed door or they're just around the corner. Like it's very, very different. Than being checked on once every 80 minutes. Like 80 minutes. Yeah. You're drunk in a cell. Which. Like you're the police. And also isn't good enough for anybody in prison for any reason ever. Like you don't know, you don't know what people are going to do when they're not checked on. Like it's just a public safety thing. Like it's just general care, general care, waiting. But someone who is vulnerable, who is drunk, you don't know whether or not they have any medical conditions because it doesn't sound like they asked. You don't know. You're completely making an assumption about someone. It is not good enough to check on someone like within an 80 minute period. That is fucked. It's not good enough at all. And you know, if you ask somebody, are you okay? And they can't, like, do you have any medical conditions that I should know about and they literally can't respond you don't assume that they don't you assume that they no. do yeah. yeah like you have to make that 100%. assumption 100% and the thing that you know really grinds my goat about this whole situation is that like you know about you know not having any charges and stuff like even if nothing is found it deserves to be looked into like that it, it needs to go through that process because at the end of the day, a person died and a, a person, person died. died because somebody did an action or took an action or made a decision and like, you know. And also, can we talk about the fact that Tanya was the second person in her immediate family that died in custody? Like, I'm so sorry, but like, what the fuck? What the actual fuck? Like, 
and we we've talked about you know the inquest that was that happened after John Pat and like you know thinking that there were going to be all these sort of steps forward. Literally, people keep on like a, a woman died in custody in Brisbane last yes, week. Yes, I saw that. What? What the actual fuck? This isn't getting any better, and it doesn't seem like we're learning anything. And innocent people are dying because they're meant to be under the care of the police. And you know. Ellen and I, since we started this podcast, have been very, you know, obviously pro-law enforcement, especially with the inv- like the, the the police officers that we've talked about that have responded to the homicides that we talked about in, um, you know, our initial season. But it is so different looking at these cases and looking how how undeserved our Indigenous Australians are by by the police and just how there is a complete lack of care and a complete lack of outright, <laughs> outrage because shit like this keeps on happening. Sorry, I'm getting a bit teary. Um, yeah. I think, you know, a major Fuck. thing with, you know, us, re the police, is that, you know, I have a healthy respect for people who, you know, put their life on the line to investigate crimes and stuff like that and yada, yada, yada. But, like, hunting serial killers and solving murders takes up, like, what, 15% of what the police does? But, like, literal community... Like, on the ground, like, com- doing... Yeah, yeah like- community service, I'm going to call it. Like, that is you know their job is to be there for the community to help she didn't like not and can I just also say Tanya didn't do anything wrong but also people that do things wrong and are getting arrested they shouldn't be hurt otherwise like no one should be dying it doesn't matter like if you have committed a horrible offense you should not That's be the thing, injured homie. in police custody like, just because you're in like it, innocent guilty doesn't fucking matter you're still a person and you're still under the care of an organization that's meant to, for the sake of the community and for the sake of yourself, protect. Protect and serve. That is their job. You know, like, you know, we don't have the death penalty anymore. We haven't decided that criminals, like, the punishment for doing a crime is death. And, no. you know, here's a good, like, comparison is that when we talk about, like, convicts and stuff, we're like, oh, no, sent to Australia only for the crime of stealing a sheep. Like, we can tell that that is, like, a gross, you know, that, you know, doing a crime like that doesn't doesn't warrant the, the punishment that is given. But people will say, oh, well, she was drunk in public. Like... So? so that doesn't mean that you then have to die. We are not guillotining people for being drunk in public. This is 2020. Anyway, that's the whole thing. Part of the reason why, like, I I found this case extremely hard to research in a way, like, not in terms of, like, the difficulty of it, but, like, that emotional kind of strain. And I think the thing that really got me, like, that really hit me personally was that, like, Tanya is the same age as my mum. And oh. she was going to move to Melbourne so she could help look after her daughter who was having her first baby, which was supposed to, would have been, you know, is meant to be the most special time in that girl's life. And then she had her mother, like, ripped away from her i do not know how i would function as an adult 27 year old woman without my mom like no, you know i no, i couldn't I imagine it. imagine if something like this had happened to my mother that like i would i would do anything to get justice for her and justice yeah. is being denied to tanya day's family and for mm-hmm. reasons that you know the department of public prosecutions has decided not to release for whatever reason their decision making but it is unjust and she you know she was underserved and as we've said like the class problem in australia goes unnoticed to white people because we you know think that there's nothing wrong but it's like this woman was sick she had a disease alcoholism is a disease she suffered a horrible trauma so she self-medicated with alcohol and you know what 
I can honestly hold my hand up to say that I've done the oh, same thing who sometimes. Doesn't? Who hasn't? Who hasn't? You know, it's I. Oh my god, the day family, like oh, the whole thing is just any anything that we can do to help. Honestly, you can follow the because... Instagram page. I think it's called Justice for Auntie Tanya Day. Um, her family is still like wanting more to happen, as you can imagine. Like the whole yeah, everybody is just in shock because there's just like that. Oh, actually, well, we're not going to do anything about that one. Sorry, and it's like oh, okay, but my mum is dead. Like my mum is dead, and you don't care enough about her to do something to the people who killed her. Essentially, I will um share their um profile on our instagram story when this goes up today um it'll also be in the show notes and it'll be in the show notes and everything i'm emotionally exhausted grandmother of eight yeah she had eight grandkids and she was like you know obviously all mums loved and stuff but like she was a family woman you know she was so dedicated to her family and her community and she should be alive I'm very angry. I feel kind of like jittery. I have energy now after being so angry for so long. Um, excellent work, Ellen. Thank you so much for um, talking about that case with us. Um, we'll link all of the information to Tanya and to her family's crusade in order to, you know, get justice for Tanya. This isn't a um, – there are a lot of stories like Tanya's, especially about um, older Indigenous women in this country that this has happened to. Um, I know that they're um, – there's, um, as I said, there was a woman in Brisbane last week who um, was di- like died in custody. Um, this is a systemic problem that, you know, we all have to work harder at. Um, thank you so much, guys. Uh, if you want to get in contact, please send us an email at – oh, sorry, you, you giggled. Just what? because you're like you, – you are staring off into the dis- distance with this just like rage in your eyes. It's like if you yeah. want to get merch, you can find it at Redbubble. Like, <laughs> Yeah, if you want to send us an email, it's at murderandlandpods at gmail.com. Um, if you want merch, we're on Public and on Redbubble. Um, you can find us on Instagram at murderandlandpods and on Facebook um, please make sure you're leaving us reviews um, if you like our episodes if you don't then you can bugger off um, Jess did you eat the yeah, Freddo? I ate all of the chocolate and I had quite a bit of coke which probably is going to be why I don't sleep tonight again mm. but that's okay it's okay I'm truly fanging a caramel and koala in a way that I have not fanged <laughs> anything in a long time <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much guys and we'll see you in two weeks goodbye bye Hello and welcome to an advertisement for the Penny Peep Show. What is the Penny Peep Show? Well, in our podcast factory, our podcast scientists have been working hard on a range of light-hearted radio play anthology series that everyone can enjoy. Caramony, correct it, spokesperson. Is there a light-hearted radio play anthology series for me? No, every series is marked explicit. But why not tell your parents, nameless child? They'll find the Penny Peep Show wherever good podcasts are stocked. The Penny Peep Show. It's like dissolving your ears in a cocaine-laden off-brand soda. Is that a good Shut up, nameless child. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.